Hello, hello, and welcome to Coming Down Hot, a celebration of women in the professional culinary arena. I'm your host, Sally Kenyon, and I'd like to welcome you to the inaugural episode of CDH. I started this little creative journey because I became insanely interested in the seemingly new trend of women taking charge in the culinary environment, uh, chefs, restaurateurs, mixologists, um, and it finally seems like it's time that women are leveling the playing field, and they're doing some very exciting things. So I thought, well, why not explore all of that on a podcast and maybe snag an interview or two here, but also offer up my perspective by way of essays, which I am including two in this episode, one on food memoir with a little bit of background of how I even got into the culinary business and the other on family recipe and the lore that goes around some of our tried and true family recipes that are a big part of our celebrations and everyday life. I'm also going to include an interview with a wonderful chef from Northern Michigan, uh, Esther Paris, who has the only Mexican restaurant about a 75 mile radius of Drummond Island, Michigan. So it's all about the women who are making their mark in this food world that has grown so huge. The Dominique Crens of Atelier Crenn in San Francisco, the only three-star Michelin female chef in the United States. Camille Cogsworth, the James Beard Award-winning up-and-coming chef from Philadelphia. And someone like Caroline Stein, a restaurateur from Los Angeles. They and many, many other women are basically at the top of their game and shaping the future of food in this country. So naturally, I'm amazed at the evolution of the food movement and how the landscape is changing so quickly and boldly since my beginning. I began cooking 25 plus years ago as an alternative to waiting tables while I was pursuing an acting career. And I guess you could say I've always chosen to do things a little bit differently. I mean, acting and waiting tables just seem to go together, but where's the creativity in taking people's orders and hoping that your service and sparkling personality were enough to pay the rent? At least while in the kitchen putting together people's food, that required some sort of right-brained activity and kept me out of harm's way from toxic diners' attitudes. So I bailed on waiting tables altogether to be a prep cook, and I do use the term loosely, at a health food store making fresh carrot and celery juices and loading the hot food bar with dishes pre-ordered from a local restaurant. I made an astonishing $4.75 an hour. Although I continued to pursue my acting career, I do think I was destined to be in the kitchen at some point in time. 
My first real kitchen job came on the heels of my stellar health food store experience. And I'm going to assume at this point that I wowed the chef with my superb wit and endless charm because she hired me with no real experience whatsoever. However, I learned quickly and found myself moving from making sandwiches and flipping burgers to managing kitchen operations in three short years. But I didn't really land in the business until 2001 and my first real kitchen line cook experience at the Stein Erickson Lodge in Deer Valley, Utah. I'm pretty sure that once again, I charmed my way into the job because I knew the five mother sauces. Even though I had never even come close to fine dining, the chef must have thought I had enough on the ball to take a chance with me. It was during my time at Stein Erickson that my culinary education wasn't limited to food service. Welcome to the politics of the professional kitchen. I was one of two women in the kitchen, and about 60% of the guys were cool with that, and the other 40, not so much. I also learned that I had a choice. Be a woman in the kitchen and do okay for myself, or be one of the guys and try to move up. I chose the latter, which also included dealing with some unsavory behavior like it was nothing. On the plus side, I did get to develop my artistry with the appetizers, hone my skills on the fish station, and try to find my swagger on the grill, all the while laughing off some of the most blatant harassment from my male co-workers. But another benefit of working in this kitchen was being at the beginning of the farm-to-table movement and learning how to expand my repertoire of taste, textures, and techniques I had expanded from french fries to foie gras, from sandwiches to sabayon, and I began to master the art of the amuse-bouche and 12-course tasting menus. So I come to this endeavor with not only a lot of experience, but also a tremendous amount of passion for food, the art of food, and a very keen interest in the women who are leading a new charge on the culinary front. Here's to you, my sisters, who are doing it big. The Stephanie Izzards, the Ellis Waters, the Ileana Regans, the Diana Davilas, the Mashama Baileys. Here's to the Liz Johnsons, the Katiana Hongs, the Anita Lowe's, the Naisha Arringtons, and more. All of them bringing it hard and heavy in the kitchen. Because it's about more than a movement. It's about more than a revolution. It's about more than a renaissance. It's about totally badass women taking their rightful place in the culinary industry. So hold on to your hats, everybody, because it's coming down fierce, fresh, and female. Translation, it's coming down hot. Chapter 1, A Food Memoir, The Birth of an Epicure. I've always had a keen sense of my connection to food. Someone was always in the kitchen cooking meals, from pot roasts on Sundays to homemade egg rolls, or baking pies, cakes, cookies, bread, you name it. The kitchen was, 
and still is the center of our household. Growing up, meals were more than just a time to introduce an energy source to your body. Meals were togetherness as a family, communion with friends, the pageantry of special occasions, ritual. We sat down to dinner as a family nearly every night, each of us assigned a task to help get dinner ready. Mine was setting the table. Even now, as a parent myself, I strive to uphold those standards at mealtime, and my kids, rolling their eyes at me, begrudgingly comply. Because for me, it's not entirely about the task or its function. It's about participation, family, connection, and yes, even ritual. To this day, I am enamored with the way a meal, a bite, or even a taste can create a moment or a memory. I have such fond recollections of special occasions like Thanksgiving and Christmas, birthdays that consisted of whatever you wanted for your birthday dinner and a homemade cake, picnics, good family friends coming for dinner, and, in special circumstances, going out to eat. All of these created a rich tapestry that became the foundation for my love of food and eventually my professional culinary career. In the early years, when my parents had a tight budget, they would occasionally make mealtime an event. It was too expensive for all six of us to go out for burgers and fries, so the drive-in became our kitchen table. Burgers were creatively wrapped in wax paper, and the fries, while done on the cookie sheet in the oven, never lost their appeal, especially when it was all served up with a homemade milkshake. The alarm never sounded when breakfast was for dinner that money was really tight. It was fun, imaginative, creative, resourceful, and always full of love. Going to a restaurant was, unlike today's climate, special, rare. In Battle Creek, Michigan, where I grew up, there were probably a handful, if that, of restaurants that you could go to for that special kind of experience. Places like Spa Steakhouse, with the baskets of assorted crackers on the table, club crackers, sesame breadsticks, Melba toast, all particularly noteworthy in the 70s, and they had white tablecloths. We dressed up to go out to eat. When my grandparents came to visit, there was another restaurant altogether, the Brown Jug. I loved going to this restaurant. The interior decor was white stucco walls with dark wood trim, almost Tudor style, if you will. Inside the front door to the right was the bar with a handful of tables. It was the kind of place with the red glass jar candles covered in white plastic netting on the bar, and unsurprisingly, multicolored plastic swords piercing cocktail cherries and olives. 
My meal plan at the brown jug never altered. Every single visit for me consisted of a trip to the salad bar, back when salad bars were the thing, and the stacked ham and Swiss cheese sandwich served on a big round bun. It was, in my eight-year-old eyes, perfection. I can still see the orange and white layered cheese cubes neatly assembled on a toothpick on my plate after a trip to the salad bar and recall the taste, that very special taste, of the warm ham and cheese sandwich 43 years later. Holiday traditions also became lovingly etched into my memory banks. Cocktails at six were not only a family institution, but an indelible part of Thanksgiving and Christmas celebrations, complete with a cheese board, crackers, summer sausage, and most often a bowl of dry roasted peanuts. I think they were my grandfather's favorite. The precision with which this ritual was executed was to me legendary and special. There's a certain comfort in the togetherness and the adherence to routine that when coupled with celebration makes a very lasting impression. Another perfect example of this would be my father's dedication to our Christmas Eve feast of Welsh rarebit, not that we would ever have it any other way. That heavenly concoction of beer, cheese sauce, and bread was spectacular. I'm going to hazard a guess to say that although the elements have changed slightly over the years, with the addition of broccoli and rusk and smoked turkey, to name a few, the basic format of cheese sauce, Canadian bacon, and English muffins has held its own in rock-salad fashion for 40-plus years, with my father taking the role as master magician. Quite simply, that tradition will never change. For me, these experiences are profound, from the simple to the supremely memorable, and they all have shaped my culinary view immensely, not from the standpoint of what should be done, but more specifically, how it should be done. I fully understand that not everyone aspires to the professional level of culinary artistry that I have, but we all, in our own way, aspire to connectivity, community, togetherness, and tradition. Food, cuisine, eats, however you choose to call that which feeds and nourishes us, is the most common of threads that binds us together as people. Feast, dine, snack, gorge, grub, eat, whatever you want. But enjoy life. Create a little bit of art at your table. But most importantly... Share it all with those you love. You are listening to Coming Down Hot, a celebration of women in the professional culinary arena. Chapter 2, Family Recipe. 
I'm willing to bet that every family who cooks, bakes, or creates in the kitchen has a cachet of prized family recipes. Recipes handed down from generation to generation, acquired from good family friends, won in poker games, or found in a cookbook, and then woven into the family history. My family is no different. Even now, as I speak, one of our most coveted family breakfast dishes is being assembled in the kitchen, a dish called German Farmer's Breakfast. German Farmer's Breakfast, which has been produced in our family for years, too many to recall, really, is a hearty and flavorful dish of potatoes, bacon, peppers, onions, and cheese, all folded together with beaten eggs and cooked in a pan on the stove. I'm totally unclear about the origin of this recipe, but it has never disappointed. It is such a part of our family's food lexicon that even my teenage nieces request it when we all gather at the farm. Most of the all-time Kenyan family favorites came from my grandparents. Recipes like pecan pie, ham loaf, and German kniffles have earned a spot in our own culinary Valhalla and cannot be trifled with, nor given away. You want access to these goodies? You had better put a ring on it. Seriously. My brother-in-law couldn't even secure access to his favorite teriyaki meatballs with just an engagement to my sister. Only with an idea was that recipe handed over. Yeah, it's that real. Some recipes, the ones that are most legendary and have the highest security clearance, like apple dumplings, came to us through acquisition that is the stuff of fairy tales. For as long as I can remember, we've always had our seasonal family activities. June meant strawberry picking, and December and Christmas were welcomed by a trip to the tree farm to cut our own Christmas tree. But I have to say that my particular favorite was fall and apple picking. There was nothing that signified autumn more, with the exception of college football, than apple picking. Our favorite orchard, Hillcrest, was a sprawling estate about 45 minutes from our house, with more apple varieties than I can even recall. While Jonathan, Macintosh, and Yellow Delicious were abundant and ready to be picked, it was the Ida Red that was coveted by my family for its incredible crispness and slightly tart flavor. There were many ways to celebrate a trip to the orchard that fell outside of the task at hand. Whimsical family rituals that had to be carried out before even a peck was picked. Without fail, my siblings and I sought to outdo one another with the kicking off for Hillcrest, Ida Red routine that consisted of finding said apple variety on the ground and drop kicking it as far as we could. Another of our favorite hijinks was the leaving of an apple on the branch with a bite taken out of it. Now, this escapade required some skill as one had to pull the branch down, take a bite from the back side of the apple, and return the branch to its position without dislodging the fruit. If executed properly, it was certainly a calling card left behind for an unsuspecting picker. 
we, as it goes without saying, thought we were hilarious. The now ubiquitous Saturn Donuts always provided the proper punctuation to a trip to the orchard. But it wasn't until dessert that night that the grand finale of fall took place, the making of the apple dumplings. The story of how my family came by the apple dumpling recipe is as legendary as the dumplings themselves, for these are no ordinary dumplings. Imagine, if you will, a whole apple, cored and peeled, enveloped in a pie-crust-like pastry dough, smothered in a rich cinnamon-infused buttery sauce, baked to a crisp golden brown perfection, and hopefully served warm, these apple dumplings have always been nothing short of the gold standard. I asked my mom the last time I was home what the real story behind the dumplings was. One year in the World Series, the Cleveland Browns played the Cincinnati Reds. Cleveland Indians. Cleveland Cleveland Indians (laughs) played the Cincinnati Reds. And we had this young couple that lived next door to us by the name of Adam and Jenny Bridge. And Jenny was a big Reds fan, or daddy, Howard, being from Cleveland, was Cleveland. So they had this bet. And... The and the winner got apple dumplings, and Jenny made them. So so obviously. So Baba won the bet. He right. got apple dumplings, and she yes. made them. Yes. But she also gave him the recipe. And then she gave my mother the recipe. Oh my. Okay. And I mean, they from the first mouthful, I think the best thing I have ever tasted. Well, they apple. are pretty spectacular. One looks forward to them every fall. And it's that sauce that makes them. I would agree. The process... But there's, you know, the dough is also different because it has the baking powder in it. Well, it's maybe. not your typical pie crust. And I know what you're thinking. That is a pretty amazing story, isn't it? Well, there is a glitch in the matrix. After some pretty exhausting research, one click of the mouse and Google, really, I discovered that, disappointingly, the Indians and the Reds never met in the World Series. Ever. Not that it can't happen. The Indians are in the American League and the Reds are in the National League. But as far as family legend has it, it never happened. But at the end of the day, does it really matter? A bet was most definitely made and won by my grandfather. And to this day, ultimately, I suppose the winning continues. We have this incredible recipe, a great story to tell, and a dessert that's worth its weight in gold. Yes, they are that good. You are listening to Coming Down Hot, a celebration of women in the professional culinary arena. Chapter 3, 
en la cocina con Esther Paris. On the blissful Drummond Island, off the eastern tip of the Upper Peninsula in Michigan, there's a little piece of Mexico called Esther's. Esther Paris owns and operates the only Mexican restaurant in a nearly 75-mile radius, and it is good. Tacos, burritos, even chilaquiles are on the menu at her establishment on the main road headed into the Four Corners, the quote-unquote downtown of the island. She's in the kitchen from start to finish, making everything from scratch, right down to the flan and tres leches cake for dessert. A lovely effervescent woman from Mexico City, Esther came to Drummond Island with her husband, a now-retired Navy man, several years ago. I caught up with her at a restaurant for a little conversation on my recent vacation. I had so many questions, but what I really wanted to know first was how she got started in this slightly remote wilderness destination. Because we always had this Cinco de Mayo party in our house. It was free. Everybody would come in. I didn't for seven years. They would come into the backyard. I cooked for a week. And everybody ate for free. So they knew my food. So those that I talked to, they knew my food. They have tried it. They loved it. So it's like, okay, then I started doing meals in the weekends, and I would call those that they already know my food. And they sold out. You know, I did up to 100 meals every two weekends. So it's like, there is something there. You know, there is something there. So one day, finally, it's like, okay, I'm going to put my ducks in the room. I check. We have no zoning on Roman Island. I can't get a restaurant, but maybe I can get a mobile unit. And of course, I wanted a shiny, beautiful one. Too much. You got to, your perspectives have to meet something. You can't go too high. Right. Because otherwise, you, you, you just won't make it. So anyways, okay. So I went, I got my license with the health department. I checked with the credit union for a loan. I looked for a trailer. I, like I said, I checked in zoning. And all of it was... Right here, I found the trailer. It was it was awful, but it had prospect. I always see in things prospect, you know, same as in people. Oh, was it already it? built out, or did you have to build it no, out it to the kitchen? No, it was built. Okay. It had a kitchen. It, it, okay. it had everything, but it was very run down and not taken care of, and but it had everything I needed. Okay. So I said, okay, Roger, this is what it is. I've been pre-approved for the loan. Let's go see the trailer. He was like, what? <laughs> I said, what do you want me to do? You know, I I, I can't. I'm, I'm almost 50. I need to do something. I, I, this is it. He goes, well, if you think you can pull it off. so. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to saddle up and ride, right? Yeah, exactly. You got to leap and trust. That's that's where I'm right now. with <laughs> Like with this little project, you just got to leap and know and that no. you're going to fly. Exactly. You have to take your chance. If you don't take a chance, how would you know? It goes without saying that the one thing you get from Esther immediately is positivity. She is, judging from her logo and meeting her in person, happy, enthusiastic, and very comfortable in the kitchen. Even in the North Country, where ingredients may be potentially hard to come by for such specific flavors as Mexican cuisine, Esther gets it done authentically and very deliciously. But there's another element, too. It's in the commitment of doing things with effort and most definitely love. 
I have gone to many Cisco shows, you know, so I can see what they have. I can, I mean, there is some ideas, but most of I, what I have, it's homemade. It's made here, you know. Yeah. So most of everybody is like everything comes frozen, ready, prepared, you know, ready to go. I think that also sets me apart. Although it's a whole lot much more work. Like my meats, I leave them overnight so they'll cook and then come in and shred them and cut them and do right. whatever. Right. So I think it's what it sets apart. Those that they do homemade, those that they do pre-made. You know, just open a can and there it is. And there it is. Yeah. That's the difference between... Um, like a chain? Uh, well, just a place you go and eat to a place you go and enjoy and and be nourished. It's a personal. difference between being nourished and fed. Yes. I do have to say that for my first interview, I was very comfortable and very much enjoying listening to Esther's perspective. From her wise and steady passion about her food to her unflinching wisdom about pursuing your dream, I felt like we had known each other for quite some time. So, out of curiosity and trying to stay on point, I asked her this. What advice would you give, say, a young woman who's coming up and says, hey, who knows you? Esther, I want to open a restaurant. How do I make that happen? Follow your dreams. Follow your dreams. And keep working and work hard because working hard is what gets you there. I mean, it's not going to be easy. I mean, there's a lot of people that's like, oh, you know, I, I, I have a nephew. He asked me, so you got them. How can I do that? How can I make that happen? I said, well, first of all, you're going to have to work at least 14 hours. He goes, well, that's a lot. <laughs> and then you have to have some sort of a plan. You but know, so. Do you find that the ultimate part of it is that because it is such a passion that it's, yeah, it's work. It's long hours. Mm-hmm. But it's not work. No, it's 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 hard feeling. Yes. To come out here and people tell me how good it is, and then you know, it's like that fulfills my soul. It's like yeah, I can keep going. So yeah, it is. It is hard feeling. I just love her optimism. It was such a roll of the dice to start a food business on an island with just about one thousand year-round residents. But. She's built such a clientele that it allows her to take November to April off and go recharge in a much warmer climate. Winters up there can be pretty hardcore, even for the hale and the hardy. Before we parted company, I had the opportunity to share with Esther my perspective and why this whole idea came about anyway. Well, fabulous. I We were here last night to eat, and it was Taco Tuesday, big <laughs> thing in our house, uh, even in Chicago, and absolutely delightful. Thank, Thank you, you so much. And every time we're up here, we Thank always you. make it a point to stop at Esther's. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. I mean, like you say, it's just so worth it. It is. I mean, I wouldn't change it. Although I have a lot of aches and pains, you know, because <laughs> I'm almost comes 60. with the territory. Exactly. I know, so, I know, right? Yeah. Because that's the thing that I just got to the point. It's like 
You know, I, I need to switch directions a little bit. But still do you. And still do me and still do the, the food and the passion. And, and so I came up with this idea. That's and so I great. love to talk to, and, and, and this is mostly about women in the culinary industry. It, it's just so important to me to really highlight women who have have really taken charge in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. uh, especially, you know, now that the food industry is so huge and then, it's you know, so versatile. And it, it's really great. So I came up with this idea. I'm like, you know, I, I'm a woman in the kitchen. You know, I worked my way through a lot of stuff um, in professional kitchens and I, you know, What's at the heart of it is the passion and the creativity mm -hmm. and being able to turn that into something, something physical, like that something can eat and you can have that exchange. I love that exchange with people. I love how a bite of food can take a moment and freeze it in time and, and like really take hold of your memory. and. That's that's a lot of what I get from your food here, is because in just how we discovered it and how we put it all together. Now you have the brick and mortar establishment, and and it's it's fantastic. So I really really appreciate you taking time out of getting ready for lunch service to sit down with me. Not and uh, I wish you much much success in the future. Continued success. It's it's fantastic and. We look forward to stopping in every time we're up here. Perfect. Thank All you right. so much. Thank you so much. Thank I appreciate you. it. And that's going to do it for me, your host, Sally Kenyon. I'd like to thank you for tuning in to this inaugural episode of Coming Down Hot, a celebration of women in the professional culinary arena. I'm not going to lie, this has been a fantastic exploration in creativity from putting together the ideas and creating the copy and the essays and just sitting down and sharing in the enthusiasm of being a woman in the kitchen who's doing it for herself. I'm looking forward to sharing many more thoughts and ideas and trends and recipes and interviews with you as we go down this creative and brilliant road together. Thank you again for listening, and I will see you down the road.